There's a word we've all heard, and it's a word which we've all used, and that word, that word is benefit. What's an accurate definition of the word benefit? I go to dictionary.com. According to dictionary.com, a benefit can be something that is advantageous or, or good. It's an advantage. An example of that would be uh, studying for a test will certainly be a benefit when it comes time to take an exam. A benefit can, can be a payment or a gift as one made to help someone or given by an employer, an insurance company, or a public agency. An example would be the benefits of a, of a 401k and, and health insurance. Another definition of the word benefit, it can be an act of kindness, a good deed. So, so what are some benefits of belief? What benefits are available when one places faith in Jesus? We've been studying Paul's letter to the Galatians for several weeks, and this morning we're nearing the halfway point, and, and we'll be at the very end of Galatians chapter 3. And, and I want to give us a reminder that Paul's audience is essentially two groups. You've got the long-timers. You've, you've got those, those long-timers, even though Christianity at this point is still new. The first converts are from the Jewish synagogue. We saw that in the book of Acts. That was Paul's first target when he'd enter a city. When he'd enter a town, he would, and Barnabas or Silas, whoever was with him, would go to the Jewish synagogue. Preaching the gospel in the Jewish synagogue because these first converts, they understand words about God. And, they, they, and in terms of persons and places and things related to, to God and the history of His people, those, those long-timers are familiar with that language and those names, such as, such as Abraham. And, and then, in addition to the long-timers, we have the newcomers, we have the Gentiles, ones who've recently come to faith. Or maybe they're checking things out about the faith. They, they've begun to understand that sin is, in fact, real, and sin is destructive. And there is one, capital O, who has come to deal with sin. And this is Jesus. He's Savior to the Gentiles. He's Messiah, the Anointed One to, to the Jews, the long-timers. And, and we know that Paul keeps before both groups in the church the promise made to Abraham. And if you've been with us or listening the last few weeks, we've gone over that promise made to Abraham, a belief in the promise that God would bring both blessing and salvation and faith in what God would do in terms of those blessings and salvation and the resulting right standing that can happen before him. This righteousness, that's the definition of the word. Righteousness is a right standing. And this promise given to Abraham was made years before the law was given to Moses to give to Israel there at Mount Sinai. The story of Abraham encompasses a large part of, of the book of Genesis, while the story of Moses and the children of God, exiles from Egypt, making their way through the, the wilderness into the promised land, that, that takes the bulk of the remaining four books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, when the law is given. And the law is to show God's people how they should relate to God. You see, we are an unholy, sinful people. Always have been, always will be. 
And God is a holy, sinless, perfect God. And, and how does an unholy, sinful, imperfect people relate to a holy, sinless, perfect God? Well, Paul begins this morning in, in verse 23. He, he says, Before faith came, we were kept in custody, under the law, being confined for the faith that was destined to be revealed. It's kind of hidden behind a curtain. It's not been revealed. It's not been unveiled yet. And so Paul speaks of the law. And again, what is the law? Well, the Ten Commandments, we've said this before. You have the Ten Commandments. You have morality laws, community, community laws, civil laws, dietary laws even. Lots of, at first, odd-sounding stuff to us that we find there in, in those first five books of the Bible. And it sounds, sounds foreign. It sounds just kind of weird. And the law of Moses diagnoses the presence of sin, the reality of sin, and, and sin as a result of man's broken relationship with God. And, and this is why... The law of God applies to all people throughout all of history. We're all sinners. We've always been sinners, and we always will be sinners. And this is why God's law applies then and applies now and will apply until Jesus, the King of Heaven, returns. The law gives statutes which counter some of these sins. And really what the law does, it gives the diagnosis of sin but it cannot provide the cure. It, it's like going to the doctor. And the doctor says, all right, you got this going on, Jake. you got this and this. I'm diagnosing it. This is the problem. Well, that's what the law does to our lives. The law points out the fact that we got a problem, but the law cannot provide the cure. Part of the problem with the law, another one, the challenge with the law is the long-timers of the faith who've adhered to these laws for years, they want these newcomers to adhere to this, those same laws, even though Jesus has come to fulfill them, not to abolish them, but has come to fulfill these laws and to make a different way to come to the Lord. A lot of these old-timers want the law to apply to these new ones. Paul says we're kept in custody. We were kept in custody. Again, the law defends the, defines the parameters of how we're able to access things of faith. It's like the margins on a piece of paper. The law gives those definitions, those, defines those parameters. And we were confined to that. This is the, this is the fence under which you stay. One translation, the New Living Translation, says we were, we were kept in protective custody until faith was revealed through Jesus. Faith in the Lamb of God, faith in Jesus. Again, the law is like going to a doctor to see the doctor and get a visit to the doctor, and we are diagnosed with our sin problem. The law addresses symptoms, but the law cannot provide a cure. And Paul says in verse 24, he says, Therefore, the law has become our guardian. That's an interesting word. To lead us to Christ. To lead us to Jesus. So that we may be justified by faith. The law, again, diagnoses our sin problem. And then Paul uses this word guardian. 
in the original language, that word guardian, the word that's written is the word where we get the word pedagogue or schoolmaster or teacher. As a younger man, when I was studying formally, I studied music. And there were, I had professors who were trained in the ways of guitar pedagogy, the art of teaching guitar or piano or voice. There's a pedagogical approach. You know, this idea there's a study. And so this word for guardian means teacher, but it's not just in terms of skill. It also means in terms of character, in terms of a, there's a moral discipline, not just a functionary discipline, but a moral discipline. So when we see, a, when Paul says that the law was a guardian, the law was our school teacher, it's not that we are learning character by the law. We are learning morality by the law. Again, the law doesn't cure us, but it diagnoses and it points to the cure. And then Paul says we are justified by faith, because what has happened, this guardian of the law points us to Jesus so that we can be justified by faith. So what does justified mean in a church sense? But justified, what does that mean? Well, it means to make righteous, to defend the cause of, to, to plead for the innocence of, or to acquit a court case. When someone is justified, they're, they're acquitted. Because of what Jesus has done, if we've turned from our sin, if we've turned to Jesus, then we are acquitted of our sin. We are rendered innocent of our sin. We are justified. Amen. And, and that's, a, that's a benefit of belief. Just as the fact that the law cannot provide a cure, actually, there's a blessing of belief. <laughs> and the fact the law can't provide it, only Jesus can. Now we're no longer under the schoolmaster this guardian, and, and our faith is in Christ's work on the cross. You've heard me say before, I, I referenced one Wednesday night several weeks ago about I loved the radio, uh, loved listening to the radio as a child, and on Saturday mornings we had this thing called Swap and Shop. And people would call in and they'd say, well, I've got this, you know, I'm going to sell this for this, this much, and I want you to call this number. You, you, maybe you had something like that here. Um, it could be people would sell equipment, baby clothes, shoes, or they'd want to trade. They wouldn't just sell. It could be, it could be for a trade. And, and so in the same way, You've heard me use this phrase, the holy horse swap of salvation. What happens? We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you want to write that down, that what happens when we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, then we, in essence, trade our sin, and Jesus gives us His righteousness. We are clothed in His righteousness. It's a transaction. It's a trade. And we're able to verify it because of the black and white that we see it in God's Scripture. In God's Word, we're able to see that it's a faith transaction that takes place. We become justified. And, and that right there, 
<laughs> we, we become justified, and that is, is a benefit of our belief, that our justification in Christ is our cure. Paul says, For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourselves with Christ. What's Paul saying, this idea of clothed in Christ? He would write in Ephesians 4 a little bit later, he said, if indeed you've heard Jesus and you've been taught in Jesus, you're able to rid yourselves of the old self. Jesus makes us clean, but, you know, we, we have a responsibility with how we act, our character. We just saw that with, with the law being the guardian, how there's a moral, there's a moral uh, discipline. Most of us remember how mom and dad taught us how to act. <laughs> we remember those lessons. There's, there's ways which we, that which we have to act. There's behaviors that we are to adopt if we've been made righteous by Jesus. And, and that's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4. He says, you're to rid yourselves of the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with, with the lusts of deceit. Paul says you are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And you're to put on the new self. We don't put the new self on to be clean. We can't save ourselves. But because we have been made clean by Jesus, we are to walk and follow in obedience to Him. And it sometimes means, no, it all the time means to put on the new self. I think it's King James says, put on the new man. We're to put on the new man. And <laughs> it's in the likeness of God which has been created in righteousness. So, so we're to put on the new self. We're to put on the new man. Jesus has done the cleansing, and Jesus has actually provided the clothing, the clothing of righteousness. And now you and I, we, we need to wear it. We need to own it, and we need to wear it and put it on as part of our witness. Not because we're trying to earn our standing before God, but because of what Jesus has done, we now have to, we have a responsibility to, to act like a new person. To act to, to be new. That's a benefit of belief. Mm. And then Paul says we can all, all sons and daughters, we can be all sons and daughters, we are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. If, if we've come to Christ in our sin, if we've become clothed in his righteousness, and, and if we've done that, if we've come to Christ first, he's made us clean. If we've done that, then we need to be baptized if we haven't been. And I point that out because there's often a misunderstanding. See, see salvation comes first, then baptism. Baptism doesn't save, and it's crucial to understand this. Jesus, in the Great Commission, the last words of Matthew 28, the last words of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he says to go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I have commanded you, and then those words of hope, I'm with you always to the end of the age. 
make disciples. And a disciple is, by definition, one who follows. If we are disciples, then we are following close behind Jesus. We're called as a church to make disciples. We're called to, how do we make disciples? Well, we teach disciples to follow what the Lord has commanded. Jesus himself has said that. So if we're making disciples by teaching, once we do that, then we baptize. But in verse 28 this morning, Paul says, it's a confusing verse because I think our culture... (laughs) Let me clarify what 28 says. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What in the world does does Paul mean? We can be one in Christ. We're all sinners, but we all have the opportunity for salvation in Christ. Christ died so that salvation would be available to anyone who would turn from sin. And Paul is saying there's neither Jew nor Greek. That every nation and tribe and tongue has the opportunity for for salvation. And regardless of our race, our nationality, our ethnic origin, and in those days it was be be, be we Jew or Gentile, and in our context, whether we're longtime church attenders or, or we're newcomers to the things of faith, we can be one in Christ. That's a benefit of belief. Paul says there's neither slave nor free. Again, there were societal issues in that day with slavery. In our day, regardless of where you work, whether you're retired, regardless of your social standing, be you a bank president or indigent, we can all be one in Christ. Christ levels the playing field. Paul says there's, there's neither male and female. We know from Scripture, we know from God-breathed Word that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is fearfully and wonderfully made. And men and women, boy and girl, are made with distinction and made with difference. And we see, we see this all the way back to Adam and Eve. And despite our distinct, despite our distinct God-designed differences, men and women have the very same access to the things of God through Jesus. We can be one in Christ. That's a benefit of belief. We're all sinners. We all have the opportunity for salvation. In Christ, we can be a family of faith, and we can all be one in Christ Jesus. Again, benefits of belief. And Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. We see this promise again, one made to Abraham, that every nation, every tribe, every tongue would have the opportunity for salvation. We can become joint heirs with Jesus. That's a a pretty mind-boggling thought. Paul would write in Romans, 
he says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. Once we trust in what Jesus has done, then we become the very children of God, and if we're children, we're heirs of God, and we're fellow heirs with Christ. We are heirs to the promise made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. In the last few weeks, we've, we've read of that conversation, that first conversation between the Lord and Abram. And one of the things the Lord said to Abram, through you, every family on the earth will be blessed. Lots of benefits to having a belief in Christ. We were kept in a protective custody until our faith in Jesus was revealed, and, and now we're able to be made righteous by Jesus' blood. We, we can be justified, acquitted of our sin if we have faith in what Jesus did on the cross. We can put on the new self. We are to put on the new self, the new man. Jesus has done the cleansing, and he's offering us his clothing, and we have, we have the responsibility of wearing it, of owning it and wearing it and wearing it out. It's part of our witness. And we've been commissioned by Jesus to make disciples. We're all sinners, and we all have the opportunity for salvation in Christ. We can be a family of faith. We can be one in Christ Jesus. Wow! All these benefits of belief. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue has the opportunity. This morning we began looking at what are benefits We've seen that a benefit can be something that is advantageous or good. Jesus is good to us. A relationship with Jesus is advantageous. We've seen that a benefit can also be a payment or a gift made by an employer. One benefit of belief is is that gift given to those of us who've turned from sin and confessed Jesus as Lord. We we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's It's a down payment of heaven. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. That down payment of heaven we, we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that the Lord has set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, a down payment guaranteeing what is to come. Woo! A benefit can, can also be an act of kindness. God has indeed shown us his kindness through Jesus. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Remember that you were at one time separate from Christ, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who previously were far away have now been brought near by the blood of God of Christ. Mm. Mm. Thanks be to God for giving us one in whom we can believe, Jesus.